Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. In the last episode, we examined the ongoing dramas and losses that made up the rising. The controversy of Francis Sheehy Skeffington's murder, the massacre at Mount Street Bridge, and the beginning of the shelling of Dublin by the British, which would last until the end of the week. In this episode, we see the situation take an interesting turn as General John Maxwell explodes onto the scene as military governor in an atmosphere of martial law across the length and breadth and width of Ireland. It is across Ireland that this episode will take us as well as we investigate the varied forms that the Rising took in Ireland's different regions. How each region's Irish volunteer commander interpreted his orders and went about carrying them out says a lot about Ireland at that time, and the generally chaotic nature of the plans that had led the rebels this far. Continuing our examination of the average Dublin citizen, we look at what happened when the British sought to capture North King Street from the rebels. We then conclude with some important debates over what rebels wanted and how much they knew about the reality of the situation, while under the command of men like Patrick Pearce, Thomas Clark, James Connolly or Thomas McDonough. If all this content sounds good to you, then welcome to the miniseries. When Diplomacy Fails presents... 1916 A special centenary miniseries exploring the context, characters and controversies of the most significant act in Ireland's modern history The 1916 Rising The extraordinary thing to us is that there seems to be such a lull all over the place. The day is a close, sultry affair, inclined to rain, and as if thunder were still in the air. The rattle of a cart along the streets seems now like a marching man, and then like the rattle of a machine gun. Isolated reports are heard on and off, but the fighting, if there is to be any fighting, has not yet started, although this trouble broke out at about noon yesterday nor does there seem to be any move towards fighting. 
how, when, where the first contest will start, we have not the slightest notion, and certainly never was an attempt made to inaugurate a republic in such a peculiar fashion as the present. Dublin Eyewitness, Thomas King Moylan, in his diary, Tuesday the 25th of April, 1916. We had just got into the post office. Every place was quiet at that period. Numbers of people were on the street looking around. We had tea and eggs and cigars. I thought we should just have a rest. Connolly paraded to us and said, It didn't matter a damn if we were wiped out now as we had justified ourselves. I thought it a bit rugged. Irish volunteer Thomas Harris, arriving from Kildare on Wednesday morning, the 26th of April, 1916. Looking at it from the inside, it had the air of a Greek tragedy about it. Michael Collins With the arrival of Sir John Maxwell in Ireland on Friday the 28th of April, a new phase of Irish history began. Maxwell was part of the Old Guard, a veteran British general who had seen action in the Sudan as part of relief columns sent by the British to recapture the region, and he had then served as military governor in Pretoria during the Boer War. It was here that he cemented his reputation as a capable soldier and administrator, and his experience proved invaluable with the outbreak of the First World War, where Maxwell's CV recommended him for the job of defending Egypt from the Ottoman army sent to seize the Suez Canal. His success there further elevated his star, and thanks to his prior experiences governing unruly populations, he was then recommended to restore order to Dublin and Ireland as a whole when he was appointed military governor of the island. He had quite the job ahead of him. Although the tendency is to focus on Dublin when narratives of the East Arising are released and examined, across Ireland smaller engagements had taken place, and some had been more militarily successful than the main event in Dublin. In County Wexford, for example, a county 200 kilometres south of Dublin, so in terms of a mind map, you have County Dublin, where you have Dublin City, and below that you have County Wicklow, and below that you have County Wexford, and they're all along the East Coast. So, the town of Enniscorthy was seized in County Wexford, after one volunteer had cycled the entire 200km distance from the GPO on Tuesday to arrive on Thursday with orders for the volunteers there to mobilise. Roughly 300 men took over the town and established barricades, a la Dublin, reinforcing their positions and encouraging the locals to join them, which many did even though they had no weapons. It was only when the British sent a contingent of 1,000 men strong to disarm them on Saturday that the whole thing began to fizzle out. And even then, only because the British escorted one of the Wexford volunteers to see Patrick Pierce in jail, since that volunteer didn't believe that Patrick Pierce had actually surrendered. Once it was proven to this volunteer from Wexford that Patrick Pierce had in fact surrendered, he himself surrendered his garrison from Wexford. 
In Galway, a county in the west of Ireland, roughly 700 volunteers have been given orders to mobilise under a local IRB man. The problem again was a shortage of weapons. With less than 30 rifles, 60 revolvers and some old hunting shotguns, most of the men ended up carrying nothing but a pike. It was a scene reminiscent of the 1798 rebellion in that sense, although it had been the Wexford volunteers who had occupied a place called Vinegar Hill, a seemingly unimportant area, but it was the place where the United Irishmen, during that old rebellion, had made their last stand in 1798, and thus it held a symbolic significance. In the end, though, because Galway, on the other hand, was exposed to the sea, the British were able to bring their naval superiority to bear in a big time and began shelling the volunteer positions. The volunteers had enjoyed some local support, but the British control over the strategically important port was total, and before long, the volunteers dispersed into the countryside, to be arrested over the following days. In the northwest, as well as in Northern Ireland, men had risen up. One group was actually under the command of Dennis McCullough, and if you can remember him, you're doing well. He was one of the three men on the trio of the executive of the Irish Republican Brotherhood, and thus its key figurehead in the north. He hadn't approved of the Rising per se, and he had been excluded from the plans of Tom Clark and Sean McDermott, who made up the other two men of the trio on the executive, and had formed the military council of the IRB to plot for the Rising more effectively. McCullough couldn't just allow the Rising's events to continue without taking part, even if he hadn't been made fully aware of what was going on in Dublin. He rose in Belfast, but elected not to cause a scene, and considering the high Protestant population there and the general lack of sympathy he'd probably get because of that, he decided to march with his men to the nearest train station and travel to County Tyrone instead. He had planned to then link up with the forces in the west of Ireland, but his forces dispersed themselves after it was learned of the surrender in Dublin. In Cork, located to the south, 1,200 men had gathered upon hearing the news of the Easter Rising, but were left then deflated and angry after hearing that their commander had been convinced to surrender his weapons after prodding from the local priest, who wanted no violence to break out, in fairness to him. In fairness, though, to the commander of the volunteers in Cork, he had received nine contradictory orders in the space of four days, and by Thursday had probably had enough of the whole thing. By far the most notable event within Cork occurred at the family house of the Kent family. It was here on the 1st of May, 1916, two days after the surrender in Dublin and about a week or so after the events were covering here in real time, that a large contingent of police arrived after the event of the Rising to arrest the entire Kent family, who were known in the area of Cork for being nationalist sympathisers and generally participating in nationalist-type activities. The men were known to hold positions in the volunteers, particularly the oldest brother, Tom Kent. In the 1940s and 50s, interviews were conducted with individuals that took part in the Rising and its aftermath, and these invaluable documents were stored in what was called the Bureau of Military History and their archive in Dublin. But even though they were recorded in the 40s and 50s, they were only open to the public in 2003. 
This treasure trove of primary source documents contains over 1,700 first-hand accounts from individuals that acted or lived during this all-important era, and the establishment of the Bureau of Military History and the eventual release of its documents meant that historians were suddenly able to construct riveting narratives that were made from actual personal testimonies of people who took part. Of these testimonies, it is one of the Kent brothers, William Kent, who had an interview with the Bureau in 1947, over 30 years after the events of the Easter Rising and everything else that went along with it, which stands out the most for us. A bit of context, though, since their name will be popping up a good bit. The RIC refers to the Royal Irish Constabulary, and these were essentially the British-sponsored and governed Irish police force some of whom were made up of Irish, with British or Protestant men serving in the higher positions. During the Rising, the British frequently armed the RIC when they lacked sufficient soldiers to do the job, and this resulted in a number of confrontations between RIC units and those of the volunteers. When one would think that the British should have sent their own soldiers in, but likely couldn't spare the men. Anyway, William Kent is the guy we're listening to here, and this is his remembrances of the morning of the 1st of May 1916, when police came in force to arrest him and his family. He recalled, Notwithstanding the news that the rising was over in Dublin, we still remained alert and did not remain home at night. The night of the 1st of May was the first that we actually returned to sleep at home. Early on the following morning we were awakened by loud knocking on the hall door. The house was surrounded by British Crown forces. I was sleeping in the eastern side of the house. I jumped out of my bed, put my head out of the window and asked, Who's there? The answer was, Police, come down. I immediately awakened Tom, who was sleeping in the western side of the house, and said to him, The whole place is surrounded. We are caught like rats in a trap. Tom put some clothes on, armed himself with a rifle, and, without showing himself, called to those below, "'What do you want?' As expected, the answer came, "'We are police and have orders to arrest the whole family.' Then the reply was given definitely by our whole family. We said, "'We are soldiers of the Irish Republic. There is no surrender.' Our mother, then over eighty years of age, dressed herself, and all during the ensuing fight, assisted by loading weapons and with words of encouragement. The police fired a volley to which we replied and a fierce conflict began. We were armed with three shotguns and a rifle. The fight lasted about three hours. Head Constable Rowe was shot dead, while other members of the RIC were wounded. David, my brother, was also badly wounded, having lost two fingers and received a gaping wound to his side. Military reinforcements arrived, and when the last shot was fired from the house, we had no alternative but to surrender. Our ammunition was exhausted, the house was wrecked, not a pane of glass was left unbroken. The interior was tattooed with marks of rifle bullets. The altar and statues in the oratory alone escaped destruction. All around the altar, plaster was knocked off the walls, but not one of the statues was struck. At one time, the fire of the attackers was attracted to the window of the oratory, where they thought a girl was firing at them. Strange to say, it was the statue of Our Lady of Lords that they saw from outside. Following the surrender, we were taken out through a window assisted by the military. 
Thomas was not permitted time to put on his boots. Thomas and I were immediately handcuffed. Richard, a famous athlete, was not immediately handcuffed, and in the confusion he attempted to escape by bouncing over a large hedge nearby. He was fired on, though, and he fell mortally wounded. We were then lined up against a wall of the house by the RIC who prepared to shoot us when a military officer interposed himself between us and the firing party. Ordering the police to desist, he said, I am in command here. Enough lives have been lost, and I take these men as prisoners of war. Under heavy military escort, the four of us and our mother were taken to Fermoy military barracks. Our mother was subsequently released. Thomas and I were taken to Cork detention barracks. David and Richard, being wounded, were taken to Fermoy military hospital, where Richard died of his wounds two days later. The remains were handed over to relatives on condition that the funeral would leave the town as quickly as possible. The small cortege came down Barrack Hill and was halted by a barrier on the bridge, which was patrolled by military. The general public was not allowed to attend the funeral, but women knelt on the sidewalks in Formoy as it passed, and some young men from Cork Road escorted their remains to Castle Lyons in defiance of the British order. At the burial service at the family vault in Castle Lyons, a light, which appeared to have followed the cortege from Formoy, shone on the vault and by this light the officiating clergyman read the burial service. The later execution of Thomas Kent on the 9th of May in Victoria Barracks, Cork, is often referred to as the forgotten death of the Rising, since he neither took part in the events in Dublin nor was killed alongside the other leaders. Instead, Thomas Kent was killed because of the British insistence on arresting his entire family, which he, as the male figurehead, since his father had died in his early forties, felt inclined to protect. This is something I can understand. This incident foreshadows the kind of personal aspect of the later years of wars in Ireland, and in particular I feel it demonstrates the difficult position that the Royal Irish Constabulary were regularly put under. As men literally just doing their job, they would later be a source of critique and ridicule on the charges that they should never have sought to arrest or fire upon fellow Irishmen. This may be true, but we can be sure that they derive no enjoyment from such an activity, and we have to remember that as a police force run from Dublin Castle, just at the point where Irish public opinion was soon to sway against them, many RIC men had the misfortune of being, like many civilian casualties in Dublin, in the wrong place, or job, at the wrong time. The spread-out nature of the Rising, and the haphazard way in which disparate volunteer units received, or didn't receive their orders from Dublin HQ, demonstrates the chaos that reigned back then, but it also shows an important fact that General Maxwell had to consider as well, that not merely Dublin, but Ireland, required a strong hand and concerted effort to pacify at this difficult time. Though Ireland itself showed troublesome signs, Maxwell was perceptive enough to recognise that Dublin was the main event, and if it could be forced into surrender, the others would hopefully follow. This proved true, as we saw. When he arrived on Friday, the work had mostly been done, in a military sense at least, and the Rising was entering its twilight era. Maxwell's orders were to restore order and bring the rebels back into line, as well as introduce some damage control. Thanks to the few days' worth of bombardment by heavy guns based in Trinity College and by the Helga gunship on the River Liffey, 
The positions that the rebels had once held as secure and defensible redoubts now resembled little more than smouldering wrecks with rubble, debris and clouds of dust, all that greeted Patrick Pierce, James Connolly and Thomas Clark as they surveyed the situation. By this time, Pierce felt he already made his point with the venture. The national honour of the Irish had been saved because her faithful patriots had willingly come forward to reawaken the comfortable nation from her slumber and rid her of her shame after being so subservient to Britain for so long. Pierce praised the gallantry of the men he had fought alongside, perhaps because he genuinely believed that they had been brave, or because he wished to find something to take solace in. With defeat staring the rising in the face, surrounded on all sides with little hope of a breakout, scant hopes for reinforcement and no chances for success, Pierce decided to release a bulletin to the men, to be circulated to as many rebels that still held out as was possible. It said, If they do not win this fight, they will at least have deserved to win it. But win it they will. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible Irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Though they may win it in death, already they have won a great thing. They have redeemed Dublin from many shames and made her name splendid among the names of cities of the world. This consolation prize, of at least gaining notoriety for what had been done, may appear like something of a damp squib, especially when one considers that the vast majority of the volunteers, Cumundaban, the Irish Citizens' Army and others, did not truly understand what either their orders were or what the end game was. It is important to emphasise this and realise that it wasn't the same story of sacrifice for everyone that took part. Just because the language of Pierce and the extremist rhetoric of the military council suggested that a hopeless fight would be in the offing, and just because this was apparently confirmed with the failure of weapons to land in the west, of the Germans to help and the rest of the country to coordinate, few men believed that they were going to their certain death for a hopeless military adventure. That they were willing to die if it came to it is not the same thing as having little true idea what way the entire venture would end up. Volunteers fought because they had been trained to fight, just as surely as the other elements of the Rising had been. 
for what contingency they fought for exactly, depended on the information that each individual had at the time, and judging by the chaotic communication system and the near separation of rural volunteer units from the centre in Dublin, we can hazard a guess that each individual soldier did not know all that much, save for what they were being told in regular, albeit limited, updates. Because of the lack of information and the different aims that groups such as the Irish Citizens Army and volunteers possessed, it wouldn't have been surprising to learn that Pierce's rhetoric didn't significantly inspire all the men that continued to fight. Yet it was a bystander who we've met some time before, James Stevens, author of the most renowned first-hand account of the Rising, Insurrection in Dublin, who described his feelings about the Rising in similar terms to that of Pierce. He said, There was almost a feeling of gratitude towards the volunteers, because they were holding out for a little while, for had they been beaten on the first or second day, the city would have been humiliated to the soul. Historian Claire Wills argued that this suggested Pierce's message of sacrifice for the sake of national honour, and that the power of symbolism, were issues that had now struck a chord with the populace. I wouldn't go that far. Although it was significant that Stevens wrote such a line on Wednesday, two days before Pierce even alluded to national honour within one of the final bulletins, James Stevens did not speak for everybody. It is James Stevens himself who, a little while later in his account of what occurred that Wednesday, noted on the citizens of Dublin that None of these people were prepared for insurrection. The thing has been strung on them so suddenly that they were unable to take sides, and their feeling of detachment was still so complete that they would have bet on the business, as if it had been a horse race or a dog fight. We must thus make a point of separating the author's personal feelings from his observations of the public mood. Just as sure as many of the rank and file under the command of Pierce did not know the full details of their position or their mission, the people of Dublin spent a lot of time discussing what had happened, but apparently little time actually taking sides until many months or weeks after the event. While it may be tempting, therefore, to portray the stand of the rebels as rousing the populace and awakening the same feelings of republicanism within them, doing so takes for granted the fact that coming by concrete information was very difficult. The rebels were seen to be seizing shops and key buildings, causing disruption and shooting wildly in a bid to defend their new positions. How would any of these activities endear them to the populace of Dublin, whose city they had taken? Furthermore, why would they not wish to see the British put such a revolt down, when it would mean a return to peace? If we think in terms of the average Irish citizen in Dublin during the First World War especially, then the image of Dublin in flames, with rumours of German involvement that weren't quashed for some time until afterwards, and a rapid enough British response, would have confirmed that the war had reached their daily lives. Since the majority had supported Britain during the war, I feel the historically underrated sight of British soldiers, some of them who hailed from Ireland as well, coming to Ireland to defend the Irish citizens from this attack and defeat the possibly German-sponsored rebels, would also have had the effect of turning the popular mood against the average rebel. To the average citizen, I believe not enough would have been known until the end for an alternative picture to emerge. In this vacuum, the version of the story where the British had arrived to defend and help the Irish in their time of need, as their capital city burned thanks to a Fenian rebellion sponsored by mysterious sources, 
would, I feel, have become the dominant theme. Messages were carried between the rebel posts by courier up until Thursday, when the shelling and overwhelming British fire grew so intense that a slow rebel retreat crept up across the rebel lines. It was during such retreats that the rebels tunnelled into different buildings and through cellars in order to escape back to the HQ of the General Post Office on Sackville Street. Unfortunately, in the atmosphere of bullets smacking off so many surfaces, and some rebels refraining from wearing or not possessing any uniforms, civilians were almost inevitably caught in the middle. We saw last time that Francis Sheehy Skeffington was killed in cold blood by a most likely shell-shocked soldier. In the following case, some mystery and controversy still surrounds it today, but it has only been in recent years seen as an act representative of the kind of terrible toll that the Rising had on the civilian population caught in the middle between British and rebel. The controversy that I'm referring to now is a place called North King Street, and this was the name of the kill zone that constituted a street only 10 minutes walk from the GPO. It had been transformed into a little slice of hell thanks to the effects that barricades had in the city centre, not to mention the boarding up of certain windows and the reinforcement and creation of perfect sniping positions along it. By Thursday, the British Colonel Shepherd, in charge of the South Staffordshire Regiment tasked with dealing with the Enclave, was beginning his hellish advance. Each of the slum-like tenements represented another room in which rebels could be hidden or shoot from. The soldiers were understandably nervous, but they were also frustrated from days of slow progress and tough casualties. Writing about the event thereafter in an official report, General Sir John Maxwell would state that The casualties were very heavy from the fighting. The troops were continually fired at from the roofs and upper windows of the houses. With modern rifles it is impossible to tell by the sound from which direction a shot has come. The rebels were moving from house to house. As the troops, for instance, moved along the streets, the rebels would escape out back doors and fire again at the troops from practically every house. Five had to be searched and occupied. Always we found that the rebels tried to cloak themselves behind their women. Or children. When we began to search a house, they threw away their rifles and then joined the women, herding at the back, pretending they had been there all the time. And when we left, they picked up their rifles again and began the whole bloody process from the start. In the atmosphere of paranoia and chaos, the commander of the British forces, General Lowe, determined that no hesitation was to be shown in dealing with these rebels, that by their actions they had placed themselves outside the law, and that they were not to be made prisoner. This regrettable directive had the effect of making the British soldiers even more on edge when they knocked at the doors along the street in their search. Any sound of a gunshot, any face spotted in a window, any distant falling shell, all of these sounds could increase the tension. What followed was the tragic and devastating result of all of these variables put together. The full details of how the British regiment came to kill 16 civilians along this stretch of road will perhaps never be fully known. But what we do know is that in a number of cases, soldiers knocked on doors, asked if any men were inside, and then took these men aside, many of them merely day labourers, to shoot them in the building where they had lived for their entire lives. 
It was only the discovery of two bodies in a cellar two weeks after the end of the rising that actually caused an inquest to be launched. The spectacle of the official coroner not believing General Maxwell's explanation was telling of the mood of the time by even that point, but historians have since upheld it as an example of the kind of inexcusable brutality that would later crystallise Irish opinion. As ever, the tactless General Sir John Maxwell added to the debate on the fates of the 16 civilians by arguing, No doubt in the districts where fighting was fiercest, parties of men under the great provocation of being shot at from rear and front, seeing their comrades fall from the fire of snipers, burst into suspective houses and killed such male members as were found. It is perfectly possible that some were innocent, but they could have left their houses if they so wished, and the number of such incidents that has been brought to notice is happily few. Under the circumstances, the troops as a whole behaved with the greatest restraint. Adding to this, a senior civil servant's report into the murders concluded that to publish the evidence at that point would not be wise, since it would only publicise the kind of rumours which were already circulating apace. There are many points that could be used for hostile propaganda, the bureaucrat contended. Nothing but harm could come from this. This explains the incredible fact that the vast majority of the grisly and atrocious incidents within the massacres of North King Street were basically covered up until 2001, when a whole range of files were suddenly becoming available to the public owing to the lapsing of time restrictions. Historian John Dorney called the North King Street murders one of the worst acts committed by the British in 20th century Ireland. Yet, in his conclusion, by contrast, Dorney then set to place the entire incident in context. He said, There were no whole-scale massacres of men, women and children in Ireland in 1916 or afterwards. At North King Street, the men, accused of being irregular fighters, were shot out of hand by troops in the field. As such, it had something in common with the German atrocities in Belgium against so-called Frontierat, in 1914, but again in five months the Germans killed some 6,000 civilians in such reprisals. The British total in Ireland from 1916 to 21 does not even come close to matching that figure, and yet there is something in the North King Street Massacre that sums up how British rule in Ireland was never truly democratic. First of all, the incident was not unique even before 1916. In 1914, the Scottish Borderers Regiment fired on a riotous crowd at Bachelor's Walk in Dublin, killing three people and injuring 85. A court-martial was duly held, but, as it was in the case of North King Street in 1916, no punitive action was ever taken against the perpetrators. The unfortunately common trend of one rule for the British and one rule for the Irish could have led to a serious propaganda campaign. But thanks mostly to the discretion of the aforementioned civil servant, the North King Street Massacre has only recently become a subject of debate in the context of the Rising. One thing was for sure though, the rebel tactic embraced with such fervour on Monday night of boring through as many buildings walls which boarded the GPO as was possible, was a masterstroke. It enabled the rebels to run through the lengths of some Dublin streets under cover from shellfire while they were protected by the building's exterior. The impression that the rebels had established some form of pillbox system is likely what led the commanding general Lowe to order shelling to begin. 
He was simply regurgitating what had been learned, after all, on the Western Front. But if the rebels weren't boring holes in walls or sniping or carrying messages, what else did they do? And how did they imagine that the British would respond to their actions? Interestingly, and this is where the context of the era is so evident, a gas attack was one of the foremost theories put forward by the Rebel Command. In the previous episode, we heard Mrs Norway's account of how she couldn't imagine the British bombarding such a valuable record base as the GPO, and that it was far more likely the region would be subsumed in some kind of poison gas instead. This reflected common teachings at the time of trench warfare, which historians have since suspected the rebels of seeking to emulate. Having learned of such tactics through newspaper reports, and in some cases first-hand experience, rebels expected a frontal attack on the GPO to begin at any stage, similar to the mass advancements attempted on the Western Front. It was an urban state of siege, deliberately crafted for maximum defensibility, but one could also note that the siege mentality existed in the more rural trench system seen in Flanders. You could accuse me of looking way too much into this, but with some historians attesting that many rebels had an inferiority complex about the nature of their soldiery, having been told repeatedly by critics of the era to be real soldiers and go on the Western Front rather than drill at home in groups, the rebel leadership perhaps believed that by emulating the tactics of the soldier, they would be treated more like soldiers by the rebel reports. Is it possible that the farce, which was the military tactics side of the 1916 Rising, materialised because the rebel leadership desperately wanted to be taken seriously by their soldierly contemporaries? Perhaps the rebel leadership believed that in order to be taken seriously, they had to adopt the same tactics, take the same risks or willingly place their men in danger. The way the rebels behaved during the Rising can almost be described as what I would call trench tactics, because they, like their Western Front counterparts, set up a kind of defensible base. They ensured they could manoeuvre along that space with relative ease, again think of the boring between buildings, and, critically I feel, the rebels never seemed to harbour any ambition to advance. They had their trenches, now the enemy would have to come and take them. Claire Wills even speculates that if trench tactics did come about for these reasons, It was later hijacked by those that would transform the trench tactics into acts of deliberate sacrifice. In other words, rather than ask why the rebels established themselves in such stationary positions, they were simply to focus on the epicness of their defence of these positions instead. Did the rebels adopt the trench tactics to survive and defend for as long as possible, or did they set them up to create a dramatic, symbolic blood sacrifice with the citizens of Dublin as their unwilling witnesses. Was it all about the blood, or did the rebels care about the actual bleeding? On the one hand, of course, we have Pierce's works, detailing a man's ambition for a grand sacrifice to inspire the national consciousness with his martyrdom, while on the other we have hundreds of men and women who hold themselves up in buildings because they were ordered to and believed in their cause to resist. Many may have expected to resist to the end, but again, we should be careful when we state this. Resisting to the end and seeing the end as the main event are not the same things. As usual in these pick-one-or-the-other scenarios in history, both are probably partly true, and they probably differ depending on who you ask. 
To some it was a fight in defiance of British law, which they probably couldn't win, but did you hear the rumour about help being on the way and reinforcements must be en route and all of Ireland is rising thanks to our inspiration? These were the kinds of rumours that might have spurred the rebels on regardless. To others, dying among the common soldiers wouldn't have been enough. Such a death wouldn't be grand enough or symbolic enough to light a fire under Irish citizens. Far better it would be to make one last break for it, and perform a military-style surrender in the name of preventing any further loss of life. Upon surrendering to the British commander in the face of a wrecked capital, it would be far more effective to die following the ruling of a British military court. It would surely be a court-martial, since Ireland was under martial law. The whole process would likely be hurried, hushed up and perhaps a tad messy, but the truth would eventually get out. The firing squad would be called up, and instead of dying amidst the rest, in the dust of Dublin City, you would be dying in full view of the public interest, with nothing but your passions for Ireland, your selflessness, and your bravery to protect you. In the face of such an image, surely the people of Ireland would be awakened from their slumber. In the face of such a spectacle, surely they would be inspired to transform the revolt into a rebellion. In fact, at the end of the day, only Sir John Maxwell, the military governor of Ireland, could be sure of what would happen next. As news broke of Patrick Pierce's symbolic handing of his sword over to General Lowe reached him, he determined to act as he was entitled to act, with military-style precision and efficiency. Had he only known the nature of the beast he was about to create, he perhaps would have had pause for thought. By Saturday the 29th of April 1916, the revolt that Patrick Pierce, Thomas Clark, James Connolly and many others had planned had come to an official end. Though on paper their insurrection appeared to be over, in practice the most important part of the whole drama was to come next. All depended on what General Maxwell would do with the trap that they had just laid. General Maxwell, unknowing participant in perhaps the most critical turning point in modern Irish history, was about to take every last ounce of the bait, as we'll see in the next episode. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 